Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother, Jay. How's it going, John? Okay, wait a minute. Stop. We got to stop. What's wrong? Well, Jay, this is our 100th show. Wow. And? And you have asked me the same question every show, and never once in these past 100 times have I answered it. And I'm going to fix that right now. It's going good. How's it going, Jay? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. (laughs) So shout out to Jeff Christensen for noting this running gag last August. I'd actually envisioned this from very early on. Was it worth the wait? You decide. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for January 3rd through 9th, 2022. This is covering Genesis 1 and 2, Moses 2 and 3, and Abraham 4 and 5. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Wow, there's so many of you. Yeah, and they're all so pretty. That's true. Now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 33 minutes, 4 seconds. Wonderful. And what would it be daily? 4 minutes, 43 seconds. That is very doable. Now notice with these books, we have Moses, we have Genesis, we have Abraham. Each of these chapters are covering the same events, so you may be tempted to just pick one and read it. But you've got the time here. Read each of them and look at the unique differences in each creation account. So if you want, you could take each section by time code or buckle up and we'll talk about them all together. So let's take a look at Genesis. The Bible declares its first author to be Moses, who lived sometime between 1400 and 1200 BC. The exact dates are much debated. Encyclopedia Britannica has an interesting discussion about dating Moses, and you can check that out in this link in the description if you're interested. But we will put him here on our chart. Because the events in Genesis occurred before Moses' time, he did not learn about them firsthand. They were made known to him through revelation. And he may also have relied on historical sources available to him. Remember that even though we don't have them, records have been kept since the days of Adam and Eve. It seems clear that other versions other than what we have through Moses of the creation and the events in the Garden of Eden were available to earlier generations. Lehi in the Book of Mormon gives a remarkable account of the interactions between God and Adam and Eve in 2 Nephi chapter 2 from a record we do not now have. Also, understanding the structure of the Bible helps us to understand the kind of literature we are reading. Christians organize the Old Testament books into four categories, and these might be helpful to mark in your paper scriptures in the table of contents. The law are the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy, the history are the books of Joshua through Esther, and the poetry, Job through Song of Solomon, and then the rest are the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. Knowing the type of book can give us a better understanding of the author's intent in writing it. With that in mind, let's look at Genesis. From the Old Testament Seminary Teacher Manual, we read, Genesis provides the Old Testament's only record of many important events, including the creation, the fall of Adam and Eve, the flood, and the establishment of the Abrahamic covenant. However, Genesis does not focus on these periods equally. Only 11 chapters of Genesis are dedicated to the time from the creation of the earth to Abraham, 
while 39 chapters are dedicated to the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. This emphasis suggests that Moses desired to teach the children of Israel about the covenants the Lord made with their forefathers through which Israel would join him in the work of blessing all the nations and families of the earth. The accounts of the lives of these patriarchs and their wives also illustrate that although the Lord's covenant people will be tested, the Lord will be with them as they remain faithful to him. Now, from the Come Follow Me manual, in the introductory material, it mentions that these books, which are attributed to Moses, probably passed through the hands of numerous scribes and compilers over time. Still, the books of Moses are the inspired word of God, even though they are, like any work of God transmitted through mortals, subject to human imperfections. The words of Moroni, referring to the sacred Book of Mormon record that he helped compile, are helpful here. If there are faults, they are the mistakes of men, wherefore condemn not the things of God. In other words, a book of Scripture need not be free from human error in order to be the Word of God. Let's begin in Moses chapter 2. And let me just again reiterate, last time we talked about Moses chapter 1. So when it begins the creation account, it's in Moses chapter 2. But for Genesis, that will be chapter 1 and for Abraham chapter 4. So even though each of these books has a different chapter, we're beginning with the same set of events. Moses chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Behold, I reveal unto you concerning this heaven and this earth. Write the words which I speak. I am the beginning and the end, the Almighty God, and by mine only begotten I created these things. Yea, in the beginning I created the heaven and the earth upon which thou standest. Right, and compare that to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Notice the difference between the Joseph Smith translation of that verse and the original Genesis verse. Look at what truths the book of Moses makes clear. One, this is all happening in vision. Two, it is through the only begotten, Jesus Christ, through whom God is acting, and that Moses is commanded to write these things. And that's a real mystery when you're just starting in Genesis, because you don't know why, who's writing it, and what. Well, if you remember what we talked about in Moses, that gives you the setting. God has been answering Moses' questions and showing him his work, and now he's opening up a vision for Moses to be able to see how he began this great work. And that's not to say that Genesis is completely free of mysteries. What does beginning mean? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What does beginning mean? From the Institute Manual, it says, at least two important points should be made about these opening words of the Bible. First, beginning is a relative term and does not mean the starting point of all eternity, if indeed there can be such a thing. The Lord told Moses that he would speak only concerning this earth. The creations of God are too many for man to number, and many other worlds have already passed away. Thus, in the beginning refers only to this world's beginning. President Brigham Young explained, When was there a beginning? There never was one. If there was, there will be an end. 
But there never was a beginning, and hence there will never be an end. That looks like eternity. When we talk about the beginning of eternity, it is rather simple conversation and goes far beyond the capacity of man. True. Second, the creation of the world was not the real beginning for those who would come to live here. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, we lived as spirit children of heavenly parents in a pre-mortal state of existence. Now, Brigham Young's point is perhaps a good one when thinking of the creation as a whole, when he said, it is rather simple conversation and goes far beyond the capacity of man. When I was in high school, I was taught that this image represented an atom. Very simple, a nucleus with an electron orbiting it. In college, I learned that this was incorrect, and in fact, impossible. The electrons exist in a cloud of probability in a state so bizarre that physicists had to exhaust all other possibilities before they were forced to accept this one. It gets into quantum mechanics and so forth, but this image is good enough. It gives one a good enough idea of what is happening. Remember that we are contemplating the mysteries of the universe and eternity with three pounds of jello in our heads. It's okay if some things are simplified for us, as the Lord told Moses in Moses chapter 1. Now also note the difference in the Abraham chapter 4 account. In Abraham chapter 4 verse 1, it refers to the gods, and it refers to that throughout the creation story. From the Pearl of Great Price Student Institute Manual, we have this quote from Elder Bruce R. McConkie from his book, A New Witness for the Articles of Faith. He says, quote, In the ultimate and final sense of the word, the Father is the creator of all things. That he used the Son and others to perform many of the creative acts, delegating to them his creative powers, does not make these other creators in their own right independent of him. He is the source of all creative power, and he simply chooses others to act for him in many of his creative enterprises. End quote. So true. We see that throughout the scriptures. Now, as we begin the creation story, Proverbs chapter 8 gives us some interesting insight as to how it really began. So let me just share this with you. Hearken to wisdom and listen to her voice. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago, before the beginning of the earth. I was there when he drew a circle on the face of the deep. Notice that the creation, one, begins with wisdom. And Proverbs is a poetic book. So we have this poetic idea that not only was wisdom created first in that poetic idea, but that what it can mean for us is that there's purpose behind this creation and that that was understood by those who understood the gospel. Now, you may also notice going forward that creation begins with 
a void, something that is formless. And notice that how in the first three days of creation, God gives form to the formless and then fills those voids with his creations. Let's take a look at Moses chapter 2, verse 2. And the earth was without form and void. And I caused darkness to come upon the face of the deep. And my spirit moved upon the face of the water, for I am God. Now, we're going to introduce a couple of resources outside of church materials that we think might be useful. This is from a professor, Gary A. Rensberg, a professor of Jewish studies at Rutgers University. He says, the earth begins as a mass of pre-existent matter with four of the five key words listed in verse 2, unformed, void, darkness, deep, symbolic of chaos and evil. We may want to consider some of the spiritual significance to this visionary account of creation. The deep represented chaos and evil anciently. Like the ocean, it was uncontrollable to mortal man. God takes the chaos or the void, and from it creates order. From the Come Follow Me manual, it reads, Because the world around us is so beautiful and majestic, it is hard to imagine the earth when it was without form and void, empty and desolate. One thing the creation story teaches us is that God can make something magnificent out of something unorganized. That's helpful to remember when life seems chaotic. Great point. So let's go back to Moses chapter 2 and verse 3. And I, God, said, Let there be light. And there was light. And I, God, saw the light, and that light was good. And I, God, divided the light from the darkness. And I, God, called the light day, and the darkness I called night. And this I did by the word of my power. Remember, that's Jesus Christ. And it was done as I spake, and the evening and the morning were the first day. That is so interesting to note. Not only is it done by Christ, but Christ in the first chapter of John is called the Word, and he emphasizes how it was done as I spake. There's something powerful about a Word. It's taking a thought and it's bringing it into reality. Now, from the seminary manual, it includes a quote from Elder Russell M. Nelson from the April 2000 General Conference called The Creation. He says, The physical creation itself was staged through ordered periods of time. In Genesis and Moses, those periods are called days. But in the book of Abraham, each period is referred to as a time. Whether termed a day, a time, or an age, each phase was a period between two identifiable events, a division of eternity. A space is now made for night and day, light and darkness, although nothing yet inhabits them. Then from the chaotic deep, God sets up the heavens, the firmament or sky, separating the two, the water below from the water above, And finally, he forces the water into only certain places, allowing for the dry land to appear, covered with plants and trees. Now the stage is set for the next three periods of creation to fill these spaces with life. The sun fills the day, 
and the moon and stars fill the night. Aquatic life fills the deep, and the heavens are filled with birds. The land is filled with residents, beasts of the earth. But when man is placed upon the earth, only then are the creations of God pronounced very good. And that's such an interesting phrase. You might have noticed it throughout. During the creation, God pronounced things as good. The light and darkness, the earth, the plants, birds, fish, animals, but not specifically man. I wonder if that is because man will determine for himself if he is good or not. The other creations don't have moral agency. Hmm. Also, as you ponder the creation story, remember what Elder Sikahema of the Seventy taught us in this last general conference, October 2021. Quote, The sequential order in which the earth was created gives us a glimpse not only of what is most important to God, but also why and for whom he created the earth. End quote. That is an excellent perspective. Let's look at the creation of man. For perspective... I really like this cartoon of a man at a job interview. The caption says, It says on your resume that you were created in God's image. Very impressive. (laughs) Let's take a look at Moses chapter 2, verse 26. And I, God, said unto mine only begotten, which was with me from the beginning, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And it was so. And I, God, said, Let them have dominion over the fishes of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And I, God, created man in mine own image. In the image of mine only begotten created I him. Male and female created I them. I love that from these verses, we cannot miss Christ in the creation and as we relate to God's image. Notice that man and woman represent the image of God through Christ. In other words, a room full of men does not give you an image of God. A room full of women does not give you an image of God. If you want to know the image of God, you need men and women both. Let's just take a look for a minute at how that's explored in poetry in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. This verse contains an example of Hebrew poetry called parallelism. A modern example might be, The strawberry pop-tart is almost gone. The breakfast pastry is nearly consumed. Oh, that's depressing. Yes, it is. The pop-tart is the same as the breakfast pastry in the second line. They are two different ways of labeling the subject. It's poetic. Almost gone and nearly consumed represent what is happening, and it's just two ways of saying the same thing. So let's look for that in verse 27. We'll break it up into three lines. Each will have a subject, verb, object, and quality. Now don't detach yet. Take a look at this. It'll be fun. We can see them here. God created man. Subject, verb, object. And his own image describes the quality. I'll label them by color so that we can follow them. Line two starts with the quality, and then the verb, subject, and object, him or man. But look at line three. 
Line three then is the end of the poetry, but the features continue in the same order. Created he them is still the same order. Verb, subject, object. But the quality has been expanded. In place of image of God, the quality is described as male and female. Yes, it is male and female together that are the image of God. And from the Come Follow Me manual, we read, Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ are creators, and their creative work with us is not finished. They can make light shine in dark moments in our lives. They can form solid ground in the midst of life's stormy seas. They can command the elements, and if we obey their word like the elements did, they can transform us into the beautiful creations we were meant to be. That's part of what it means to be created in God's image, after his likeness. We have the potential to become like him, exalted, glorified celestial beings. Thank you, Come Follow Me, Manuel. That was excellent. Indeed. But just because we are done with chapter 1 or Moses chapter 2, don't think we are done with the creation. It extends on into Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Now, let me make a note on that. Sometimes this can be confusing. Chapters were not included in the original documents, the original manuscripts. No one cited chapter and verse. Apparently, one might say, as Isaiah the prophet said, and then quote their scripture, or like Jesus did in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 20, he just read, and it was up to the listeners to know where he was reading. Chapters were first added to the scriptures by Stephen Langton in 1205, He added them to the Latin Vulgate, and from there, they made their way into the other manuscripts like Greek and Hebrew. So even though Langton was very conscientious in his work, we don't have to pay attention to the chapter divisions. The story from chapter 1 continues into chapter 2 into verse 4. Now, if you're interested in more on this topic, chapters, verses, other things about the history of the Bible, may we recommend... How We Got the Bible on the Brother Fulmer YouTube channel. It's a documentary we spent a lot of time on, and I promise you'll love it. We may be a little biased, (laughs) but it is really good. So what is left to create after Genesis chapter 1? It's the seventh day. We have a quote to share about this. This is from Professor Robert D. Miller II. He's a professor at the Catholic University of America. He says, quote, The only thing God created on the seventh day is the day itself. This is a creation not in space, but in time. And that was a really unique feature in the Hebrew creation story. Mm -hmm. Back to the quote. For six days, God created in three dimensions, and on the seventh, God created in the fourth. He also made the seventh day holy. Judaism came to think of the Sabbath as a location in time. On Friday evening, as the Sabbath begins, a worshiper prepares to enter the Sabbath. 24 hours later, the worshiper leaves it. Genesis was written at a time when Israel had already been practicing the Sabbath. The first Israelites to ever read this passage had been keeping the Sabbath all their lives. This wasn't written to introduce a new holiday. Imagine that you've been practicing the Sabbath all your life, and for the first time you encounter these verses. You realize that when you have kept the Sabbath, you have been emulating 
God. You have been imaging God, end quote. Very nice. The Come Follow Me manual includes a quote from Elder David A. Bednar from the October 2017 General Conference. He says, The Sabbath is God's time, a sacred time, specifically set apart for worshiping Him and for receiving and remembering His great and precious promises. Now let's go back to Moses chapter 3, verse 3. And I, God, blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it I had rested from all my work, which I, God, had created and made. Notice the word sanctify. That means to make something sacred or holy. Now, scholars are divided about how to explain that there are in these two Genesis chapters seemingly two creation accounts. Now, you may not be familiar with this considering that we haven't yet read the second creation account, but scholars look at the differences in four main points. First, the two accounts in chapter 1 and chapter 2 give different names for the deity. So, in chapter 1, it is God, and the Hebrew word is Elohim. In the second account, the God's name is Lord or Yahweh, though actually in a combined form, Yahweh Elohim, or we would read it as Lord God, beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Secondly, the method of creation is different. First is creation by fiat, meaning spoken word. We talked about that before. God speaks and something happens. In the creation story In the second creation account in chapter 2, it is by physical means. For example, God formed man and breathed life into him in verse 7 of the second chapter, planted a garden, verse 8, made trees to grow, verse 9, took and put the man in the garden, verse 15. And the third is that the order of creation is different. The first story progresses from vegetation to animals to humans, while the second story begins with humankind, only referring to the male, though, in verse 7. Then comes the vegetation in the form of the Garden of Eden, verse 8. And finally comes the animal kingdom in verse 19. And lastly, in the first story, male and female are created at once in chapter 1, verse 26, while in the second story, Male alone is created first, with female following later. It should be interesting that for those who have gone through an endowment ceremony in the temple, this notion of having two creation stories may not seem that foreign. Yeah, let's take a look at some things going forward. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, notice that there's a comma at the end of that. That's not a sentence. Verse 5, And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. Notice in the Genesis account, it hints at something there. The idea that first in verse 4, it mentions heavens and earth. And then it switches it around when it brings in Lord God. This is where scholars feel like we're getting into a second creation account, a second tradition of Jewish history that they combine together rather than it being a cohesive whole, which we understand it to be. 
But notice then that earth is mentioned first and then the heavens, and then it describes things in verse 5. But let's look at that in the light of Moses, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, and see if that doesn't take that hint and broaden it out a little bit. Verse 4, And now behold, I say unto you, that these are the generations of the heaven and of the earth when they were created in the day that I, the Lord God, made the heaven and the earth. Notice right away, this account doesn't switch those. It keeps that consistent. We know that we're in the same creation account. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For I, the Lord God, created all things of which I have spoken spiritually before they were naturally upon the face of the earth. For I, the Lord God, had not caused it to rain upon the face of the earth. And I, the Lord God, had created all the children of men, and not yet a man to till the ground. For in heaven created I them, and there was not yet flesh upon the earth, neither in the water, neither in the air. Now some scholars, without the benefit of Restoration Scriptures, see this same connection between the stories. The two stories of creation are to be read together. One is cosmocentric, or from heaven's perspective, that's chapter 1 of Genesis. Chapter 2 is anthropocentric, or from a temporal or human perspective. This is the essence of ancient Israelite religion, the two working in sync together, the melding of the world of God and the world of man in unique relationship with each other. Yeah, again from Professor Gary A. Rensberg, a professor of Jewish studies at Rutgers, he says, Elsewhere in the ancient Near East, deities were associated with nature, and thus there was a distance between the gods and humankind. In Israel, by contrast, God was seen in close relationship with humankind, as illustrated in the mind of the Israelites, by the covenant concept. Hmm, I like that. Yeah. Let's go back to the book of Moses, chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. After the Lord created Adam physically, he placed him in the Garden of Eden. He also planted two trees in Eden that were significant, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is in verse 9. Now, you may notice in verses 10 through 14, there is a lot of geographic information. Although these verses mention real places and rivers that the Israelites at the time would have recognized, the way they are described would have made for a puzzling travelogue. Most Israelites reading the directions would realize how bizarre they are. Perhaps the point was precisely to keep people from trying to find Eden. Again, going back to Professor Robert D. Miller II, but it seems that, quote, readers are supposed to understand these events as taking place in real places. This isn't something that happened in a completely alternate reality. That, in turn, means the decisions that Adam and Eve make are intimately related to decisions real-life people may or may not make, end quote. That is a great perspective. I'll have to admit that I never paid much attention to the details about the rivers and so forth. But that's a great perspective considering the audience. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Moses chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. And I, the Lord God, took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And I, the Lord God, commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
thou shalt not eat of it. Nevertheless, thou mayest choose for thyself, for it is given unto thee. But remember that I forbid it. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, you might notice a difference between the Genesis account here and Moses that's very significant, and that was in verse 17, that God let Adam choose for himself. Going on in verse 18, And I, the Lord God, said unto mine only begotten, that it was not good that the man should be alone. Wherefore, I will make an helpmeet for him. Okay, now I don't want to spend much time having fun at the expense of this account because it's a very special account, but I do as a man. I love that phrase that here God has created man. He's put him in a garden. He's given him an assignment of work to do. And I know what it is for a man to not be connected to noble purpose. And when a man is separated from noble purpose, you know, you get the image of the 30-year-old in his parents' basement playing video games all day. It's not good. And I just imagine that in my mind. They've done this. They've created this. And now, you know, they're kind of watching him for a while. And God says to his only begotten, it's not good that man should be alone. He needs something to do. We need to. I mean, he's got work to do, but men need purpose. And focusing the great potential of men and women has to do with them being able to work together. Now, also notice in verse 18 that they want to make a help meet for Adam. That's a strange set of words. Let's take a look at them. The Hebrew there is Azer Kenegdo. Personally, I think that is a wonderful image. To get a little better sense of what that means, let's take a look at a quote from Howard W. Hunter. This is from the October 1994 General Conference. He says, Help is translated from a combination of two Hebrew roots, one meaning to rescue or save, and the other meaning to be strong or powerful. Meet is translated from a Hebrew word suggesting suitable and equal. Thus, a help meet is a suitable and equal companion, possessing power to save. I like that. So going on in the chapter, Moses chapter 3, verse 19. And out of the ground... I, the Lord God, formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and commanded that they should come unto Adam to see what he would call them. And they were also living souls, for I, God, breathed into them the breath of life and commanded that whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that should be the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But as for Adam... There was not found an helpmeet for him. Notice that the Moses account tells us that God breathed into the animals the breath of life. That is not found in the Genesis account. This is kind of a strange interlude. We just talked about the fact that Adam it wasn't good for him to be alone. Let's make a helpmeet. And then we have the animals created and Adam naming them. Now, naming here is very important. But I also want to introduce another cartoon I thought was quite funny in reference to these verses. It shows Adam with a clipboard talking to a monkey in a tree. He says, God said I'm supposed to name all the animals. How does Herbert suit you? <laughs> I just like that. Now, this idea of naming animals, why? Why insert that here? One thought may be that Adam needed to understand that of all the creations of the world, all the beasts in whom was given the breath of life, 
there was not an Azer Konegdo. There was no help meet for him. So you can imagine him looking and saying to an animal, are you my Azer Konegdo? And the animal says, no, no, I'm a rhinoceros. Oh, oh all right. Well, are you my Azer Konegdo? No, I'm a turtle or wh- whatever. You know, it, there's a, a sense of seeing that in all of these creatures, there is not an Azer Konegdo. Not someone that is a suitable and equal companion possessing the power to save. Back to the chapter, verse 21. And I, the Lord God, caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And I took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in the stead thereof. And the rib which I, the Lord God, had taken from man, made I a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This I know is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. The seminary manual has a couple of quotes related to this. The first is from President Spencer W. Kimball, who taught that, quote, the story of the rib, of course, is figurative, close quote. This is from an article, The Blessings and Responsibilities of Womanhood, in the March Enzyme of 1976. But also a quote from Russell M. Nelson in the October 1987 General Conference. He says, quote, the rib coming as it does from the side seems to denote partnership. The rib signifies a lateral relationship as partners to work and to live side by side. Close quote. Let's take a look at verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. We've got a reference here twice to the fact that they are married at this point. You might have seen here the reference to the man and his wife. The seminary teacher manual has a great quote from Elder David A. Bednar. This is from the April 2017 General Conference. Regarding these verses, he offers these insights. Two compelling doctrinal reasons help us to understand why eternal marriage is essential to the Father's plan. Reason one, the natures of male and female spirits complete and perfect each other, and therefore men and women are intended to progress together toward exaltation. For divine purposes, male and female spirits are different, distinctive, and complementary. The unique combination of spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional capacities of both males and females were needed to implement the plan of happiness. Alone, neither the man nor the woman could fulfill the purposes of his or her creation. Because of their distinctive temperaments and capacities, males and females each bring to a marriage relationship unique perspectives and experiences. The man and the woman contribute differently, but equally, to a oneness and a unity that can be achieved in no other way. The man completes and perfects the woman, and the woman completes and perfects the man, as they learn from and mutually strengthen and bless each other. Neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. Reason 2. By divine design, both a man and a woman are needed to bring children into mortality and to provide the best setting for the rearing and nurturing of children. A home with a loving and loyal husband and wife is the supreme setting in which children can be reared in love and righteousness, and in which the spiritual and physical needs of children can be met. 
Just as the unique characteristics of both males and females contribute to the completeness of a marriage relationship, so those same characteristics are vital to the rearing, nurturing, and teaching of children. And so that's the creation. It's an amazing thing to study, and we've barely scratched the surface on things that you can study about this. For example, so if this is the story of the beginning of this earth, shouldn't we be able to determine the age of this earth? Now, ultimately, the answer is no, at least not with the information we have, either spiritual or secular. It simply has not been revealed. This hasn't stopped anyone inside or outside of the church from making the claim that they have the answer, though. But sadly, each proposal leaves unanswered questions. I really appreciated the way the Institute Manual covers this topic, but I'll just summarize it here. For those attempting to estimate the age of the Earth, it typically boils down to one of three theories. Theory number one, the creation periods were each 24 hours as we would recognize ours today, making the Earth approximately 6,000 years old. This is often justified from a more literal reading of the text. For example, Genesis and Moses use the word day. This is also in line with the Jewish calendar. Theory number two, the creation periods were each 1,000 years, as we would recognize years today, making the earth approximately 13,000 years old. This is often supported by the creation account in Abraham, which not only defines each period as a time, but also references the astronomy lesson Abraham receives prior in relation to Kolob. Now, there's also support for this thousand-year segment in the notion of a 7,000-year period of the Earth's temporal existence as referenced in Doctrine and Covenants 77.6 as an interpretation of the passages in Revelation. In Genesis, the Hebrew word yom, which is translated as day, takes a more general meaning. In the same way that in English, day can refer to a 24-hour period or a broad expanse of time, as in the day of the dinosaurs, Authors such as Emanuel Velikovsky discuss the fallibility in modern popular scientific methods in measuring more ancient time. Now, there's problems with the idea that the Lord is giving us a calendar of events that we can relate to our current calendar. First, that rarely happens. Most often, these huge numbers are used idiomatically to describe a long period of time. In other words, a thousand years simply means a long time. Note how Helaman 8.18 describes that the atonement of Christ was known and taught by holy prophets that, quote, it should be shown unto the people a great many thousand years before his coming, close quote. The traditional 4,000 years of existence before Christ could possibly be thought of as many thousand years, but it definitely falls far short of the description of a great many thousand years. If you're interested in more on the topic of big numbers in the Old Testament, the Institute Manual in the first volume has an enrichment section about the problem of large numbers in the Old Testament. We'll link to it in the description. And that's great. And the third theory, the creation periods were each indefinite periods of time as we would measure it, and may or may not be the same amount of time for each. This could make the earth thousands, millions, or billions of years old, depending on other factors. 
As in theory two, the ambiguity of the word yom is pointed out, and also the generality of Abraham's use of time. This currently aligns more closely with modern popular scientific theories regarding the age of the earth. Now, it should be pointed out at this point that with the writings that we have, it's difficult to support the idea that Moses or Abraham intended to give a detailed history of the earth or the creation process. It's clear, given the amount of detail missing, that this was not the intent. But if you're interested in digging deeper into this, I was pleased to find these two Improvement Era articles referenced in the Institute Manual. The Improvement Era was the church's main magazine prior to the Enzyme, which was the predecessor to today's Liahona. In 1964, Paul Krakoft summarizes some arguments for a younger Earth, theory number two, from Dr. Melvin A. Cook, and even more fascinating, in 1965, Dr. Henry Eyring, father of President Henry B. Eyring, wrote a counterargument to Cook's work, supporting an older Earth. To me, the fascinating thing is most, if not all, of both articles' arguments are still valid. Again, each theory leaves unanswered questions. We'll include links to both articles, courtesy of the Internet Archive, in the description. In summary, as the Come Follow Me manual reminds us, with a statement from Elder D. Todd Christofferson in April 2015 General Conference, quote, Whatever the details of the creation process, we know that it was not accidental, but that it was directed by God the Father and implemented by Jesus Christ, end quote. Yeah, and that quote is really important because it reminds us what the intent of the vision about the creation was. It was to teach Moses and Abraham, but also the brother of Jared and others who had the vision of the creation, that it was God who created the world, order from chaos, and that there is a purpose. Now, as another side topic that some will be interested in, some won't, The question of evolution often comes up. Let's point you to some resources of the church. The most current statement by the church on evolution is found in the New Era from October 2016 in an article called, What Does the Church Believe About Evolution? It says, The church has no official position on the theory of evolution. Organic evolution, or changes to species-inherited traits over time, is a matter for scientific study. Nothing has been revealed concerning evolution, though the details of what happened on Earth before Adam and Eve, including how their bodies were created, have not been revealed. Our teachings regarding man's origin are clear and come from revelation. Before we were born on Earth, we were spirit children of heavenly parents with bodies in their image. God directed the creation of Adam and Eve and placed their spirits in their bodies. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve, our first parents, who were created in God's image. There were no spirit children of Heavenly Father on the earth before Adam and Eve were created. In addition, for a time they lived alone in a paradisiacal setting where there was neither human death nor future family. They fell from that state And this fall was an essential part of Heavenly Father's plan for us to become like Him. We'll link to that article in the description below. Some debate a scientific perspective versus a religious perspective. 
I would propose that science is a gift from God, but its tools cannot take into account things beyond the natural world. Science will use its best tools to examine how the natural world came into existence, but it cannot say what its purpose is, why it was created. God is order. He is the great organizer. From Elder Russell M. Nelson, again from the talk, The Creation, he says, The entire creation was planned by God. I testify that the earth and all life upon it are of divine origin. The creation did not happen by chance. The creation itself testifies of a creator. And we would testify in the name of Jesus Christ that that is true. Absolutely. What a wonderful start to our journey through the Old Testament. The story of the creation, how we got here, and why. Yeah, but of course, we're only just beginning. There's a lot more to talk about. Keep reading your scriptures, and we'll talk to you more about it at our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. 